Time. Space. Sex. Danger. Suspense. Today on Dumpster Book Club, we're reading The Sign of the Mute Medusa by Ian Wallace. I'm Sean. And I'm Mimi. And this book is a toilet. (laughs) Well, look at the map. At the top, you have the Uber Sea. Goes down the pipes to the sewer, brown river. (laughs) Why does this book get a a map? It's completely unnecessary, but I wish a lot of the other books you read on this did have a map. I think Silver Glass and Web of Wind would have been a lot easier to understand a lot of the proper names of things if they had a map. Oh, yeah, definitely. But there's an explanation. An artist's black-only adaptation of this map may be helpful to readers. (laughs) But it's not helpful. I think the plot needed a map. Did it? I never referred back to the map. No, like a map to explain the plot of this story. Oh, yeah. Talking about this book is daunting. I was hoping to do a shorter episode after our last episode. But there's so much. Well, okay, so anyway, this cover. <clears throat> cover, it's fine. There's a city in the background under a biodome, clouds of pollution, dirty river, and then two figures in the foreground wearing translucent beekeeping suits. <laughs> I think the worst part of this cover is that it promises time, space, sex, danger, and suspense. A spectacular new science fiction novel. I think we got all those things, except maybe suspense. I guess. Why did we read this book, Sean? (laughs) This is one you picked out on your own. Um, I think I picked it just because I'd never heard of the popular library. Yeah, the cover doesn't really induce you to pick it up. Did you look up Ian Wallace? I know it's a pseudonym. Yeah, Ian Wallace is a pseudonym for John Wallace Pritchard. Uh, he seems like a pretty boring guy. He wrote a few other mystery and adventure novels, everything deep future. He's got a lot of characters that are superhuman, telepathic, that kind of thing. He was a clinical psychologist. (laughs) What does that mean? I mean, I know what that means, but what does that mean? (laughs) And he also was a psychologist, uh, like a school psychologist for children. Is that why it's a pseudonym? Um, you know, I read some anecdotes about him and it seemed like he kept his writing pretty separate. Like people that he worked with didn't know that he had a a writing career. Everything about him seems a little bit boring and sad. (laughs) He spent most of his life working in Detroit public education and then he died. (laughs) What is special about this book is it has a introduction by the author called On the Mooding of This Novel. Sort of like a disclaimer or a warning about what you're about to get into. Well, it's almost like his response to an editor where the editor (laughs) says, you can't just do the same thing over and over again. And then in this thing, he says, I'm going to do this and you're going to deal with it. He also seemed a little bit upset. 
I think, about his publisher. The Sign of the Mute Medusa that we read is actually the third in a series, and the first one was supposed to be titled Frolic Street, and his publisher renamed it to Death Star Voyage. He felt like that you know, didn't really fit the story. I would definitely read a book called Death Star Voyage before I read a book <laughs> called Frolic Street. Yeah, but then you might be upset about false advertising <laughs> when you find out that it's yeah. not. There's no Death Star Voyage. It's only frolicking streets in this book. What else did you want to say about this, the author's footnote? He says that this book is going to be full of conversations of with wit and you know, five-dimensional chess between the characters, and that's going to be most of the book. So it's kind of like a warning. And the book really is like that, where it you just go from conversation to conversation. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I would say that's, uh, that is better left to some authors. Yeah, in his, in his forenote, he says he's going to let the dialogues continue. Like, he's not going to edit down the dialogue. He wants the whole thing in there. <laughs> but Yeah, and I imagine the editor saying, hey, you can't just have 30 pages of dialogue that goes nowhere. And then he said, yeah, I can. And then he wrote the forenote. <laughs> um, the part of the forenote that I wanted to share is the last the last paragraph where he says, I do not consider this novel primarily a thriller, but neither did I write it in the mood of an intellectual purist. I do intend it as a particularly vexatious investigative problem organically interlaced and filigreed with, I think, entertaining novelties of personality, of psychosocial intersexuality, rated PG, of space, and of time. <laughs> well... <laughs> I think he did achieve his goal, but not in a way that makes a good read. I think it is that. I wanted to highlight that section particularly because I think it really foreshadows the entire book and what and the way that it read. This book is really hard to read. <laughs> I think we'll get into that more, but as soon as I read that, I felt like I knew what I was about <laughs> to experience. Yeah, it's... It's a whodunit, and it is a pretty uh, vexing whodunit. Not because it's super difficult, but because you're not really included in the mystery. Because everything's so strange and different, and none of it operates in any, any way that we can comprehend, it makes it difficult for you, the reader, to guess who did it or try to come up with uh, hypotheses about how the murder could have happened. Well, why don't we get into the story? <laughs> well, maybe we should explain the setting. <laughs> because the, the story happens right away, and the setting mostly gets dropped on you about uh, maybe like 100 pages in. There's a, there's a big info dump, and then there's a couple more later. And I think it would have been better to just hit you right at the beginning with the setting because a lot of the mystery is keyed to you understanding where you are and the people that are there. I don't think it'd be very interesting if it just started with like a textbook explaining the world and everything, but it just felt disorganized and very incomprehensible at first because it was just people operating in these ways that you don't really understand. Um, so we're on the planet Turquoise. And this is um, a planet that super polluted industry is kind of taken over and just polluting without any thought to life on this planet. 
Yeah, and it is, for some reason, key to... It's like Arrakis in Dune. It's very key to the way space travel and spaceships work in this universe. So that, like, they can't get these materials somewhere else. So thus, they're forced to over-industrialize and pollute this one place. It's like a sacrifice for space travel. Um, so the air is poison, the river is poison... It will, the river is so poisonous, it'll melt the, your skin and organs before you feel it. Yeah, basically falling into it, you're instantly melted. The whole city's under these biodomes so that people can survive. And uh, you can go outside in the little beekeeper outfits. Not only is the air poison and the river's poison, but pretty much all the native species of plant and animal have gone extinct except for the ones that they've managed to get under the biodome and even then because they will not stop the biodomes are gonna stop working for some reason only the wealthy upper class are going to survive and all the poor people are going to die because they're polluting so much yeah it seems like there's not enough like air resources to sustain the size of the biodomes and things are kind of suffocating over time. They're kind of having to shrink back the livable space. So, And everyone knows this. Are you sure? That seemed like something that was actually uncovered later that. Okay. I thought because there were protesters and oh, right. activists who were fighting, maybe they didn't know just how bad it was. Yeah. And it seems like, even though there are people protesting it, it's still kind of people feel like it's inevitable because, you know, have to keep the economy running and can't stop, like, can't shut down these industries. So there's no other way. Yeah. And for some reason, the few native species that they did manage to bring into the biodome will not survive in space. So they can't. They're just going to die. Uh, and the most important native species is the Medusa, which are hot jellyfish women they were described as plant-like maybe floral oh maybe just because they're called medusa i imagined them as jellyfish they have like petals they're very they're not well described until much later well it's certainly not something that i would want to fuck <laughs> sorry not something i would want to intercourse uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay so <laughs> The Medusa and people on this planet have evolved into a kind of sex triangle. Uh, how do we explain it? Uh, it's This whole book, I think, is a vehicle for, like, alien sex fantasy. Mm. Um, where there's... So there's these Medusa that are so hot, and they can have sex with men... And they can reproduce humans and Medusa, but only female Medusa. All the male Medusa have died. There's only female ones, and they can only give birth to female ones. And because they can give birth to humans, they only give birth to sterile women. Women on the planet are sterile because of, like, the environment, basically. Oh. Well, I thought it was because... Th these the people living on this planet aren't actually totally human like their de their genetics have been altered based on 
generations of mating with these aliens. That's also not super well explained or explored. I, that's what I thought, especially because they're green. They, they're yeah, they are called humans, but they're just yeah, green skin. Otherwise, they're just people. They're green people. Well, people on this planet form three-way marriages where there's the human man and the Medusa to reproduce and a human... Which are called the husband and wife. And then a human woman who kind of raises the children because Medusa can't do that. Uh, Medusa also can't speak. They're telepathic. But doing their telepathy also, like, merges their consciousness with your consciousness while they communicate. That's only with Father Moki. Moiki. They can't do that with regular humans. Are you sure? Yeah, that's why he's special. All right, sure. Sure. <laughs> um, but but what about, like, the babe? Did... <laughs> Wait, does it... Isn't that what... They do with the main bad guy. Um. Well, all the Medusa can communicate with each other. Yeah, and they have kind of a collective consciousness. It's kind of hive mind, but they have separate individual personalities. Well, but I just think it's 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 a little weird that he's created this universe where you have these aliens, these like perfect wives that can't speak, but they read your mind and love you like completely and just do whatever you want and then they always want to have sex except for a certain period of the month and that's when the human females will have sex with you but they're sterile <sighs> uh, it just seems like this might be the reason he wrote the book and not to do a sherlock who done it i don't think either of those are the reason he wrote this <laughs> book um I feel like I've read plenty of other books where there's, like, an alien with a slightly different biology, and then you kind of explore, like, how does that affect the society, or how do people integrate with this? And, like, this just feels like he was trying to do something like that, but just very, very poorly. It just feels so sleazy all the time because none of the female characters have any agency, and yes. they're always being, like, they're at the whim of the men and they can't even really speak their own voice. I, I don't know. Yeah. We could give them the benefit of the doubt. It just doesn't feel good. No. Um, but this is a medieval feudal society. Oh, right. Their government uh, has a king and then a group of rich aristocrats who run the government. Uh, specifically, there's... Haroon? Is that how you, I've, yeah. I've been saying it Horon. <laughs> and Mimi corrected me. Who Har Haroon Rashid. And he um what does he do? He runs He's the police commissioner. He's the police commissioner and he runs like the air filtration. All the transportation. Oh, transportation. Yeah. Um and there's Har Charl, who runs all the mining of theotite which is the main resource that everyone needs there's vince reiner who doesn't actually live here and he's the he's like mr ford he's the main spaceship guy mm. and later in the book we're introduced to calabrini who is haroon's younger brother 
who sort of has his fingers in a couple pies. He's another secret agent. Yeah, he, he's just a, another... Fabulously wealthy. Doesn't really matter what he does. He's yeah. got money. And these four people control the king who controls the whole system. So the mystery is Har Charles and Vince Reiner have gone missing. They're presumed dead because their brain tracers are not producing any signals. Um, we're thinking maybe they were dissolved in acid, but all their like tracers and stuff like that should have survived. Um, but nothing can be found, like no trace of them. Yeah. Um, and the possible suspects are Haroon and... Uh, later Calabrini because they had a suicide pact. Not suicide pact. They had a a death pool where if one of them dies, their money gets split up between them. A tauntine. Is that, is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, so Haroon would be incentivized to off them because he get a bunch of money. There is Pam Consuelo, who is an activist who recently threatened to just tear down the biodomes and kill everyone, but he has also recently gone missing. So P- Consuelo goes missing later? He's missing by the time the detectives get there. Oh, okay. But I thought there was a pretty funny part where Ian Wallace was tooting his own horn to say, like, if Pam Consuelo went missing in the same way as the others, it would be a novelist nightmare. <laughs> But, you know, he's, like, such a good novelist. He can handle it. Oh, yeah. This complicated situation. This complicated whodunit. And the third possible suspect is Fortinbras. And Fortinbras is just uh, a less intense Pam Consuelo. He's also an activist. Some guy. He's just a guy. (laughs) Um, And to solve this vexing mystery... Captain Claudine and Lieutenant Tooley, our main characters, are called in. Uh, Sherlock and Watson. <laughs> um, yeah, this whole, all these, um, all the books in this series are around these two characters solving mysteries. And so this is just the next mystery for them to solve. Yeah, um, so the the book does not have anything on it saying that this is a sequel or a book in a series. And in the on the mooding of this novel, he says that you don't have to have read the previous books. But I think you have to have read the previous <laughs> book because there's so much stuff that's not explained that don't make any sense. And Captain Claudine and Lieutenant Tully aren't really introduced very well as characters. It takes you a really long time to figure out what they're about. And I don't think I ever really got both of them, other than that they're incredibly lusty ladies. <laughs> Every they, male character, they're, they want to do. No, no, not Thule. Okay. Well, Thule, Thule has a, a weird thing where she wants to do all of them, but then it's, it's disgusting. She can't face her own desires. Okay. But she thinks about doing all the people. So Claudine is 
the ultimate cool guy. She has multiple PhDs in psychology and, like, nuclear physics. Also, she knows karate. Sherlock. And (laughs) Dooley is, like, a little bit awkward, not great with people. She doesn't have any intuition, but she's, like, pure logic. And also, she knows karate. Uh, Kind of Watson. (laughs) (laughs) And if you were wondering, the first chapter ends the list of all their characters and their skin color. Just so you can know (laughs) the skin color of all the characters. Instead of introducing it naturally or talking about their appearance, it just ends with a list and uh, a color. (laughs) And they're all different. Where, like, Nile green, avocado, emerald, tawny green... Is avocado one of them? Did you just throw that in there? That's a real one. That's (laughs) Reiner is avocado colored. Wow. Um, But this is also how we find out that Claudine is uh, non-white. She has like a darker skin. Mahogany. Yes. Deep mahogany. And Thule is caucasoid. That is to say beige. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway... Um, so that's the setting. I don't know if it was better for us to say that at the beginning of the podcast or not, but I feel like if I had gotten that before reading, it would have been easier to read. So what even happens? The beginning of this book is all a bunch of green herrings, as they call it in the book. The way of investigating throughout this book is just long, drawn-out conversations. They don't ever search for evidence. They don't go to the scene of the crime or anything because they don't know where it is. It's just long, boring conversations with different characters. Yeah. I had some issues with Claudine's, like, investigation, her techniques, because it's, it's all interviews, but it's all interviews with the suspects. Because that's the only people that we're really introduced to. Like, everyone she's talking to is highly suspicious. And those are the only people she can talk to. And then she has to take their word for things and their explanation of things. Like, every single thing. And she's she's a really bad police interviewer, too. It, they describe it as if they're all playing five-dimensional chess and, you know, tricking each other and stuff. When she's checking people's alibis... She tells them the other suspects' alibis. Of, for example, she was asking Fortinbras where he was at this time. But instead of saying, Fortinbras, where were you at noon on Tuesday? She says, Maria claims she was with you at noon on Tuesday. Is this true? <laughs> <laughs> and she's always asking these leading questions But they always give the suspect the proper answer to get out of it. Yep. And then anytime she, like, excludes someone from her list of suspects, it's like, oh, he couldn't have done it. He said he didn't do it. And she, like, believes them because she's got such good intuition or something. But Yeah. And if if everything wasn't so awkward, and I think if we knew Claudine better, maybe that would work. Probably not. But... (laughs) It's it's just we're thrown in the thick of it so quickly, and we don't even understand where we are or what's happening. 
So one of the reasons I thought maybe maybe we didn't really need to read the previous books, maybe they wouldn't have helped that much. So after we read this, I tried to look up some synopsis or a, like a review of the first book and while I was reading it I forgot that it was about the first book and I thought it was about this one (laughs) (laughs) I think they might all be somewhat similar in style but I think I think her background in psychology is supposed to be how she's able to just figure out things from just talking to these suspects and deciding whether she can trust them or not it's also really frustrating because all the possible ways someone could have been killed or disappeared are just sort of hand waved away. So when I first read this, I think, okay, some people have disappeared. They just left the planet. And uh, that's quickly hand waved away by Haroon says, oh, I have control of all transportation. So I would know if someone left. And then Claudine accepts that. And that's never brought up again. But Haroon is a suspect. Yeah. And (laughs) there's, there's so many ways that you as a reader could think of oh, maybe they just buried them or hid them or, you know, did something else. And they just say, oh, no, it's not possible. We already checked on that. And Claudine just accepts it. So your only avenue of solving this crime is to sit with Claudine through all these interviews that don't go anywhere. Yep. And that's really uh, until the book decides to tell you what the thing is. That's all we do. Each chapter is just a different character's name. And we have an interview with them. They go meet their first suspect, Fortinbras, where, I don't know, they talk to him for a while and nothing happens. Yeah. He's, like, so inconsequential. He's, like, just the first guy they they talk to. Um, Sure. And through him, they meet Maria, who is a concubine of everyone involved in the crime, including Fortinbras and Pam Consuelo. (laughs) And... Uh, later Calrina. She regularly sleeps with all of these people. She's basically a celebrity prostitute. So she's like a big deal. She tells them to visit Father Moiki. Sure. Uh, by handing Claudine <laughs> a secret letter. And Fortinbras tells them to go take a whirlboat ride. Then we get a lot on the whirlboat, which is not just, it's not all interviews. We get yeah, to find so we out some non-dialogue. We get to find out all about this world boat. Uh, so apparently on the planet, also things that are very dangerous are beautiful to people. So this like disgusting sludge river that's like just dark brown, so beautiful. <laughs> and one of the favorite pastimes is to take a boat out into like the the mouth of the river, like where it meets ocean. And just go around it really fast in a circle. And sometimes people fly out and die, but that's just part of the world boat. Yes, this is the main form of entertainment on the planet is you go in a boat that takes a turn too fast and maybe you'll get thrown off and die. (laughs) Or at least at first, Claudine thinks this is a possible way in which they could have died if they got thrown off the boat into the water. Uh, No one would know that they were important people when they found their bones. It wouldn't be a big deal. I don't know. They already said they couldn't be dissolved in the river because of some sort of net. Yeah. But for some reason, if they got thrown off in the whirl boat... Because they disappeared on a Monday, and the whirl boat doesn't go on Monday, except Haroon runs all the whirl boats and owns all of them. So 
We're taking his word for it that it doesn't run on Mondays. So not only is this a really dumb activity, Claudine and Tuli decide to just do it one time. Fornbrass tells them to check out the world boat, so they, instead of investigating the boat or interviewing the people who run it, they just decide to go on the ride. <laughs> it's like, this person may have been killed on a roller coaster. Well, let's go ride it. <laughs> let's not look at anything, talk to anyone, do any investigating. The best part of the scene, though, is that Fortinbras decides to challenge Haroon to a duel. But the whole scene is just a wiener battle. A wiener battle? <laughs> so, I don't know. Okay, because I don't know how you could read this and not read it that way. <laughs> where there's, um, there's a part earlier where Claudine is, like, looking at their plastic cover suits. And she notices something... And she says that it's specifically male, like something gendered about the suits that's different. Is that a horizontal zipper where his sword hilt is? It's like, is that for his wiener? <laughs> but no, it's for it's for his sword. And then when they finally confront each other, Rashid unzipped his left hip zipper. Rashid is Haroon. That's his other name. And three times half drew his short appay and clashed it three times back into the scabbard. Then he dropped hands and stood erect, waiting. Okay. I see what I see what you mean. <laughs> but that changed how I read this entire scene. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. But the, why did Fortinbras and Haroon even fight? Who cares? Okay. Good enough. What is a key plot point is that while they're on the boat, Thule meets an ape man who Who's is... He's a just, sailor. Yeah, it's just a hairy guy, but she calls him an ape man twice. Hmm. And he's real hot. And she's all bothered about it, and she's trying to set up a date with him. I don't think that's what was going on. Pretty sure that's what was going on. I think she was worried that he might make a move on her, and that's when she's like, well, if that happens, there's always karate. No, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like she spends a lot of time describing his hairy body. <laughs> and then she sets up a date to meet him later. Because remember, she's, she says, um, would you um, want to, like, be with me? And he says, no. And she feels really sad. And then later he says, I, maybe I could tangle with a white widow. And she goes, ooh. Oh, my goodness. Well, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think just Thule writes a lot of checks that she can't cash later. <laughs> um, and then the whirl boat turns the wrong way. It was supposed to turn clockwise and it turned counterclockwise, which I didn't even... feels like it wasn't set up very well because I never knew... I didn't understand. I don't remember, like why it was supposed to turn one way. Well, so you know which rail to hang on to. So you don't get f thrown off. Yeah. And also it messes up the duel, but then it's important later. That's all. <laughs> uh, the next interview is with Calabrini, who can time travel. And he is also investigating this mystery, but is also a suspect. And, well... Mimi, can you just explain how time travel works in this universe? <laughs> um, okay, so Calabrini can travel through time, and you can do it too, but 
you just have to like learn the trick and you know it's like a bind trick use your mind to like travel through time so you can go up time which is into the past or down time which is into the future because time is like stream so it's like upstream and downstream and when he goes up time it seems like he can't totally interact with stuff it's like you don't interact with things normally you're just kind of there so you can like spy on people by going into the past snooping on their conversations Mm -hmm. and then you materialize in the present moment if you want so that's just a thing he can do yeah so you can't you're saying you can't interact with anything in uptime but you can go watch it or listen well it's not totally explained things don't interact normally when you're in uptime so i guess uh and just anyone can do it with their brain if they practice hard enough. Yeah, but he's the only one that does it. Because he's super smart. Yeah, he's got a lot of superpowers that not totally explained. He's also telepathic, and he can just listen to people's thoughts, including from the past. Um, and this this sets up the, the first, as the reader, probably the first real thread that, oh, okay, these people have disappeared because they're somewhere in, in a different time. Um, and I think Claudine gets that too, but she doesn't say it. Yeah. Uh, but as of right now, the only person we know that can go back and forth in time is Calabrini. So he's like, he's the main suspect now. Except Claudine keeps investigating not Calabrini. Well, I, Calabrini was kind of like the femme fatale of this book. <laughs> <laughs> they ever, he's super hot. He's very attractive. Claudine is very interested, but. So is Tuli. Yeah. Um, There's a part later in the book where Tuli just stares at his wiener. <laughs> yes, that does happen. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, Claudine just, she trusts him, so. And then the next interview is with Maria again. And right before Pam Consuelo has appeared with a knife in his back with Maria's fingerprints on them. So Maria is arrested and she's in jail and Claudine has to go visit her in jail to do the interview. And I don't understand why the fingerprints were important because Claudine immediately says they're probably fake and totally trusts Maria in saying that they're fake. And if it's so easy to fake fingerprints, why is it even a thing you check for? (laughs) Well, only people who are like super rich would have access to the like technology needed to fake fingerprints. But in this case, every single suspect is like the foremost wealthy people on this planet. So But we're in year like four thousand or something. Why is it still fingerprints the the main way we check for physical evidence? <laughs> Could we say hairs or some other DNA? I don't know. <laughs> so Claudine basically tells Maria she's innocent before Maria even opens her mouth. Claudine walks in jail and is like, oh, those fingerprints are probably fake. Let's uh, let's talk about some other stuff that is inconsequential. Yep. And then Claudine goes to have another interview with Fortinbras, who is in a hospital because he lost the duel. And they talk about actually nothing, except they have a moment where they get really close and almost kiss, and Claudine's really into him. <laughs> 
Right. And Ooh, then, yeah. And then Fortinbras, does, he's not in the book at all after this point. I was going to explain there's a trick with all these. It's not really a trick, but in all these whodunit Sherlock things, the way to figure out who done it is just watch the author introduce characters. Because if the author just stops talking about a character, they're not them. So even though <laughs> Fortinbras was in it, and he was the main suspect for a while because Ian Wallace just forgot he existed and forgot to put him back in the book. You know it's not him. And characters just drop off. And it's always a completely new character that you didn't know about is introduced. And then a second new character is introduced. And it's always the second character, that, like new character that you've never heard of and don't know who they are. Maybe it's even the third. <sighs> I'm not saying a good, a well-written whodunit maybe isn't like that. But for all of these cheesy bad ones, it's, you just follow the author, like, losing interest in characters and gaining interest in characters, and it's very obvious. Yeah. So, speaking of, Claudine goes to have her interview with Father Moiki based on the letter Maria handed her. And Moiki is not actually a priest and is not religious. What? He just decided to get a church and be a father. Huh. Okay. He can read minds. Yep. And he is the only human who can survive a mind meld with the Medusa. So instead of reading a Medusa's mind, their minds become one and they all experience things together and he knows their thoughts and they know his thoughts which makes him very popular with the Medusa because he's the only human that can communicate with them. Um, and Claudine does that move, like the guy in Cosmozoids, where she just thinks about other stuff so that <laughs> he can't read what she's really thinking. This is a really dumb interview because they acted like everything was so important and Claudine walked away saying she's learned all these things. But as the reader, it's so boring and you learn nothing. <laughs> So that's maybe the first half of the book is just these successive interviews that you don't learn anything from. And then the the mystery unfolds for you in the rest of the book. It was like the last 50 pages when stuff started actually coming together. I guess. This book is 250 pages long and maybe 50 pages of a mystery unraveling. I mean, it's just told to you even. Yeah. Here, let me open this puzzle box for you in front of your face. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> so the first thing is Tuli is frustrated because she can't decide if she's going to go meet up with this sexy sailor she set a date with, who Mimi thinks she's not interested in. She was investigating. She was doing actual investigations oh, yeah, she do out there. Investigating of this hairy man. <laughs> Investigate him. Okay, so um, she goes around. Well, so she tells this, her car to just drive her wherever. And the car ends up driving her to a specific portion of the river where she happens to see the whirlboat driving a little bit weird. And then out from the whirlboat walks Calabrini, Pam Consuelo, who's supposedly disappeared, and Haroon. And it's very shocking. And then they get into a car and drive away and she can't find them. And... She just stumbled upon this scene. It was an accident. No investigating was done. None of the interviews led to this. She randomly appeared at a scene of importance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and this uh, from these 50 pages, they all happen at the same, like it cu- cuts back and forth between all these events happening simultaneously. Yeah. So simultaneously, Claudine is having a dinner date with Haroon, and Haroon tricks her into drinking a very strong aphrodisiac. There's a whole bunch of stupid details about this whole, like, ritual that is, like, a thing on this planet, but... Yeah, the the point is he didn't explain the ritual to her and just made her drink an aphrodisiac. And she runs away and meets up with Calabrini. She tastes is, it and then immediately punches him in the face and gets up and leaves. <laughs> it's like, I'm really turned on uh, <laughs> away. <laughs> um, and Calabrini's the best guy, so he doesn't take advantage of her because that's how great he is that he wouldn't take advantage of her and gives her an antidote. Then Calabrini just explains the mystery to her. It's almost like in an adventure game when you can't figure out what's going on, so you go to the internet <laughs> for some cheats. Ask for hints. Because Calabrini just, like, lays it all out for her. Well, at the beginning, he even said, like, that he had a bunch more information, but he wasn't going to say it until she figured it out. But she never does. Or I feel like if this uh, author was smarter, it could have been Claudine bluffing her way into knowing. Because mm. Claudine's like, oh, yeah, I, I totally know. And then Calvary just burps it all up for her. <laughs> and he I thought that would it been, out. I thought that would have been funny, but I don't think that's what happened. I think no. Claudine's doing a Sherlock Except Calabrini is the one who explains it all. Um, and so what happened was all four of the rich people, Calabrini, Haroon, Vince, and Har, uh, all agreed to send Vince and Har into the past. Their plan was to send them into the future. Oh. So that they could recover them two weeks later. Okay, yeah, yeah, so you're, you're right. they were going to pretend that these two people had died to get Pam to do something drastic so that they could nab him and put him in jail. Because Pam hates them because he's an activist and he's trying to stop the pollution of the plant turquoise. So Pam didn't actually do anything drastic. Yeah, he decided not to because he was concerned about these people that just disappeared because he didn't know about the future stuff or the time travel stuff. And then they didn't show up in the future when they were supposed to. So And then after the two weeks had passed, when Vince and Hart didn't reappear, then Pam disappeared. So Calabrini's pretty sure there is some foul play. But he says someone, it's impossible for someone to mess with the controls of the time pod. But then the solution was someone did. To send them into the future, they had them in a pod tied to the whirl boat, right? Yeah. And that was like, I was assuming it was like, maybe there's limitations to how far into uptime and downtime that he can go himself. Or like, he's not able to carry that much stuff with him but they have this whole pod and they like whirl it around super fast and it's like it's like a back to the future where you have to get it going fast enough so you do the whirl boat and let let it spin around to travel into the future by two weeks but why can you time travel both just with your brain and by being in a little pod under polluted water that spins really fast why are those the two ways to time travel That's not explained. That's what they're supposed to be investigating. And I feel like if they had just told Claudine this in the beginning, she would have had a much easier time figuring out the puzzle. Because Fortinbras didn't know anything about time travel. But he was the one that told them to go to the whirlboat. 
And why did he do that? Uh, I think it had something to do with him wanting to duel, and he just said it. <laughs> oh like, but that was important that they went to the yeah, war boat. But Fort Frost didn't know that. Just another accidental. Yeah. They for some reason they didn't tell Claudine the whole story because they wanted to see if she could do it or something. Yeah, I guess she had to like prove that she's a good investigator to get that far. I don't know. Which seems like a really good way to make yourself be the prime suspect. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So... While that is happening, Tuli goes and investigates Pam Consuelo's body again, because it appeared with the knife in its back with Marie's fingerprints, and it turns out it was the, the hairy sailor she was in love with in a mask. No one thought to check the body, like in an autopsy... Or I, anything. I think all these parts were happening really quickly. Like, it hadn't even... It be, had been, like, a day at most that had passed. Like, the body's just freshly in, delivered to the morgue. Was Pam Quintzel's body exactly the same as this hairy <laughs> sailor? Was he also a hairy <laughs> sailor? And they just had different faces? Uh... So that means Pam Quintzel is still alive. Somewhere. Then Thule visits Clondia who is a new character, and Claudia is Har Charles' mistress. So his human so, wife. Yeah. I thought this was a little bit interesting, that they did not talk to the spouses of the missing persons until this far into the mystery. Well, like, they weren't even considered suspects <laughs> at all. That was another thing that Haroon said, oh, we've already talked to all the spouses, so that's <laughs> not a lead. <laughs> Because there were, in the very beginning, he basically list off, listed off a bunch of possible reasons they could have been killed or died or ways they died or ways they could have disappeared and checks off all the things they already did and Claudine just accepts them all. And then it turns out one of them wasn't true and she should have checked that. So she probably should have checked, you know, the spaceports, see if they left yeah. and everything else. Because one of her main suspects is the commissioner of the police. <laughs> The only thing Tuli learns from this very, very long interview is that Claudia is very well informed about the whole investigation, which, you know, would point to her being involved in it. And then Tuli meets Francesca. Yep. Who is hard Charles' wife, which means Medusa. And then the Medusa uh, just, like, envelops her. And Sexually envelops her. Yeah. Because she thinks Tuli's a man? Yeah, I think that was... <laughs> yep. And then Francesca spits her back out. Yeah, because she's not a man. Medusas are also blind, I think. Yep. Anyway. Couldn't she just read her mind, though? <laughs> uh, yeah, well... And then the mystery is solved. After these events, Claudine knows everything. She sends a letter back to her... But Claudine, Tuli hasn't even told Claudine a lot of these facts already, oh. but Claudine already knows. Say, oh, I know everything. I'm going to write down our plan and not tell, and they don't tell the reader. Yeah, she writes down, like, everything she knows and sends it back to, like, her superior officer. I don't know. It just, it's just to say that Claudine has already solved the puzzle in the classic Sherlock way, where she's like, oh, I've solved it. Meet me at this place and I'll do a bunch of things and um, it'll all be clear. Okay, so then then what? Haroon calls them 
video chats them to meet at what the pod loading area for the yeah. world boat. It turns out that it's not Haroon, it's Claudia in a mask, but Claudine already knew that. And Claudia throws her in a time pod along with the sailor captain of the world boat and and the actual Haroon who she seduced last night after drinking all that aphrodisiac. But Tuli manages to escape. Haroon and Claudine are sent back in time 500 years? Yes. And Claudine already told Calabrini that this would happen. So Calabrini's mind goes back in time. Oh, yeah. Calabrini also has, like, an air force field around him. Yes, so the water can't hurt him. He's able to swim in the water, which he does in, like, the first chapter. Fake introduction when we don't know that it's him. He can also breathe in the air, and he can share his force field with someone else if he's touching them. Mm -hmm. So he goes back and lands in their pod. Instead of going back on his own, though, he goes back in time like and intercepts them in uptime and appears in their pod like two weeks in the past or something and then goes with them all the way 500 years in the past. But he, then later he does go back and forth on his own. Okay, yeah. So I don't know why they spent so much time explaining this like cool intercepting move that he did. It's also a little unclear here because he is able to interact with them. Which I guess makes sense because he traveled back with them. Yeah. But then they also find the pod with Vince and Har Charl, uh, their dead bodies. And he can also bring their bodies back. Well, their bodies are also from the future. Yes. He was saying, like, you couldn't, like, breathe the air normally that's out there. Like, they wouldn't be able to survive outside of the pod. I guess just the difference is, so he can't touch the fish. Yeah. But he can touch these people who went back in time. But they went back in time at a different time than him. They went back in time two and a half weeks ago. Then he went back in time now. Yeah. But he can still touch and interact with them. <laughs> but he couldn't just yeah. go back in time three weeks and tell them not to go in the thing because he wouldn't be able to interact with them. Right. <laughs> it doesn't matter like where, <laughs> what difference time is. Just if someone goes back in time and you go back in time, then you can interact with each other. Yeah, I but mean... But he can't interact with himself who's gone back in time. Because it specifically mentions him seeing all his other forms going back in time, and then he doesn't interact with them. Well, it's not perfect. <laughs> it turns out the bad guy was Francesca and Father Moiki and kind of Clondia. So they were trying to get rid of Har Charl and Vince Reiner to save the Medusa because they're going to die from the pollution. Francesca, with her psychic powers, was somehow able to influence Claudia. Claudia's not totally working on her own will. Yeah, but and I think they were influencing other people, too. Like, uh, supposedly Haroon and was Consuelo and Ford and Brass, like, But for some reason, they didn't influence Maria. They just had the father, like, seduce her. to, mm -hmm. to And actually, Maria was the one that stabbed Yes, th those were actually her fingerprints. They were not fake. <laughs> but not something she would have done normally because she was... She wasn't even being mind-controlled. The only way they find out all this information, even though Claudine already knew it somehow, is that Calabrini goes back in time and reads Father Moiki's mind at various times in his life. 
to think like he reads his mind at various uh, key points of them plotting this plan. Uh-huh. Um, and we get to read all of that. And we read it all. And it's all in italics. But for some reason, the way the court works is mind reading is inadmissible in court. You can't use mind reading. So they don't have any evidence. <laughs> yeah. They have absolutely no evidence <laughs> or proof. Well, fortunately, everyone confesses because they're so guilty. Yes. Uh, Francesca kills herself. Maria kills herself. Father Moiki and Claudia confess. But they only decide to punish Claudia, punishing Father Moiki. I guess it's just Father Moiki. He was too important. I don't know, working with the Medusa. Yeah. So he gets a pardon. The book ends with Thule reading Claudine's report because Thule thinks Claudine's such a great investigator. Yeah, she's trying to learn from the best. And it's it's pretty boring to read, but the funniest part of Claudine's report is that she gives no credit to Calabrini and only the tiniest bit of credit to Thule, who Thule did the main two things, which was see those two those people coming off the boat and then meeting Claudia and Francesca. And she gets pretty much no credit. So I'm positive this is how Claudine has become the top investigator is she just lied her way to the top and takes credit for other people's actions she already knew everything she didn't need any evidence <laughs> she used her intuition to solve it and that's that's basically uh that's who done it <laughs> it was Francesca so then I guess the other thing about the ending is that I mean, Francesca's goal was to kind of prevent her entire species from extinction. One of the outcomes of everyone ending up 500 years in the past is just seeing the beautiful, clear water full of life. And I think they have a change of heart and decide maybe they can try to find a way to clean up the planet, solve the pollution while still, you know, not destroying the economy. Right. Francesca kills herself, but she's partially hive mind, so I don't know if it matters that much. Because, like, only a tiny bit of her individuality dies. Because the Medusa are all kind of one a little bit. Yeah. And um, Father Moiki is let off on, uh, is given a pardon because he's so important. And so Klondike is really the only one who suffers. And it wa she was being influenced by Francesca. So it seems to me like Francesca just won. She killed two people, Maria killed herself, and the only person getting in trouble is the person she was influ like psychically manipulating to do it. And the Medusa are going to be saved. Yep. <laughs> Thinking about that made me imagine a better book, and I thought we would bring back the, the Sean's better book. Okay. I don't think I can do it. For, I don't, it shouldn't be a segment for the show or anything because I probably can't do it every time. You know, I probably can't write a better book every <laughs> single time. But I did it for Hobgoblin, and I think I've got one for this one. Okay. So sort of skip the, the Sherlock stuff and imagine this is somewhat mystery but more of a court drama. <laughs> and uh, so, like, the you know... First of the the first part of the book is exploring this alien species like you would in any sci-fi, learning about the Medusa being a, a kind of hive mind and their situation uh, with the pollution and them uh, dying off, and uh, learning that how the Medusa can psychically manipulate people 
the the court drama would all be how do you convict a hive mind of a crime? Oh, okay. Uh, and who's really to blame when they're somewhat individual but not totally? And all these people they're influencing and their levels of involvement. And then also what would be the consequences of a whole species being guilty of killing these two or three people? Um, and then you could have this whole undercurrent in the book of the moral question of did they have the right to kill these people because they're trying to save their their species and stuff. I would rather read that book than the book we read. And I was imagining, you know, Philip K. Dick could do a really sarcastic, silly version of that. That would be pretty fun <laughs> to read. Or, um, you know, Dan Simmons would do a big space opera version with a lot of intrigue with different political forces trying to influence the jury and stuff. Or, um, I think I, I hate to admit it, but, uh, Orson Scott Card would probably do a pretty good version of it. <laughs> Because he would do a really good character-driven drama. He would, he would, you know, remember in the later Speaker for the Dead, the AI and the yeah. the different creatures. He could probably do a really good version of that, too. Yeah, sure. Anyway, that's my better book. <laughs> well, I think I was imagining a better book also. Probably the biggest problem is just this guy's writing style. I think if he had focused more on the pollution, this whole problem, and then, like, trying to solve that by the end, maybe... Kind of Dune? Um, I guess the way I imagine this being a better book, it's, like, more of, like, Claudine internal affairs or, like, from, like, a different investigative organization who's there because of, like, all this corruption with the upper class doing all this stuff and have the upper class characters, this like tetrad of four characters not being the sympathetic people that are helping her through it have them be like more antagonistic than they were in the book and have them be actually the villains and she has to find characters she can work with to investigate what's going on and what they're doing and to kind of like stop them to actually you know save the planet basically and I think that's kind of what I think that's why this book was written because I don't know if you noticed, but it was dedicated to the Environmental Protection Agency. Whatever its ups and downs, bless its cause. <laughs> and I, I feel like that was what he really wanted to like get across with this book. But it's just so buried under stuff yeah. that's like nonsense. Well, you know what would have helped is if um, instead of having the tetrad of leaders, you could have them different houses that are all vying for power. Or corporations. There, yeah, and then there could be a galactic emperor who's influenced by one of them who sends an elite military force to kill all of Claudine's family. <laughs> and she's raised by the Medusa and becomes their their leader <laughs> and learns their yeah. ways. <laughs> yeah, like that. That would have been a better book than this. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so... I think the hardest thing to explain about this book and why it's so difficult for us to talk about is that the way it's written is so brutal. It's hard to find any comedy or things to talk about in this because you're always just fighting the author's diction. And uh... <laughs> So this made me think of when you start out writing things, like in school, you discover the thesaurus. <laughs> 
and you start looking up words and just, you know, to mix it up or whatever. But it seems like he was constantly looking up words and replacing them with the biggest word he could find. Mm -hmm. And I felt like he was sometimes choosing the wrong word. Like, just looking for, like, the biggest possible words didn't always make it the right word to use. Yeah, the whole thing sounded like an eighth grader who thought they're really smart. And I thought sometimes the words that he was choosing were, like, just overtaking anything that would have been good in that sentence, just obscuring things that were there. Like, I think going back and trying to read things a few times is, like... There, there were, like, jokes and stuff in the writing, Louis the 39th and, like, stuff like that. But it's all just buried under, I think that was in a, a paragraph that used the word obsequiousness twice. <laughs> um, and, and the dialogue was supposed to be witty, but it was... It was not witty. It was impossible to witty because, I mean, I know no one ever talks like dialogue is written in books but this one was so over the top that no one would ever say any of these things in the way they're said it just was completely unbelievable as dialogue and that was the whole book was dialogue if he couldn't find a word big enough for what he wanted to say he made up his own words by using hyphens to jam two other words together and i think that was like I think he clearly had some trouble with sentence structure. And so mm -hmm. to force it to work, he would create ridiculous combinations of hyphenated words. Yeah, you should probably leave the making up words to William Shakespeare. <laughs> well, so I had a game for this book. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. No. So... Basically, flip to any page in the book and first person to find a hyphenated word. <laughs> okay, okay. So, hold on. Ready? Go. Stirrup cup. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we going again? Yeah, we, you, can, you can count it. Okay, go. Taxi materialization. Uh, you're so good. <laughs> All right, ready? Okay. One, two, three, go. Pressure thrust. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Do I have one? I also have death risk. Oh, my God. Whirlboat. That's hyphenated. I don't know. Maybe we should end on pressure thrust. All right. But it's almost every single page. Like, I, while I was practicing, I couldn't find a page that didn't have hyphenated words. <laughs> the other thing is, like, Claudine is described as, like, she's cool. She's always, like, calm and collected and she's, like, in control and um, just very smooth character. But then, then she'll blurt things. It made sense when Thule was blurting things because she's kind of a little bit awkward and not as good around people. So sometimes she blurts things without thinking about them. But Claudine should not be blurting. Mm -hmm. That's the wrong word for her character. And then sometimes they were chuckle blurting. 
Which is like he c- he couldn't find another word for like laughing loudly, like guffawing or something stupid. It's like no, it has to be chuckle blurt. And then and if it wasn't that, they were ejaculating things. Ejaculate's just a normal word for speaking. I ejaculate all the time. <laughs> I don't get the joke. I think we both have a few things we want to read to show off this book. Really give you a sense of what the writing is like. I think the first one is me. Yep. Unseen by them, Calabrini, who had been drifting on the shadow marge of the precious present, stopped listening and moved uptime several hours. His heart was heavy, yet curiously buoyed. The first time objectification of his concerns had been at once painful and purgative. The ostensible flippancy covering the intensive carefulness of the mistress captain had pleased his aesthetics and his conscience. This combined with the amusing appealing, that's a hyphenated word, (laughs) bumble prudish, that's another hyphenated word, alertness of her lieutenant brought into high eminence the possibility of final truth. And this eminence, ironically, exacerbated his guilt while hardening his determination. He chuckled. Part of his complex mood was that his stated condition, requiring evidence as a prerequisite to confession, put it all comfortably off a bit. He frowned. Another part of his complex mood was that her presentation of evidence would oblige him to confess. Okay, well... Beat that! Okay, so I had one from their dinner date. The restaurant Cote d'Or was what you might have expected from its name. An elegant period-piece, vintage 20-3rd century, golden-opulent-neoplush as to decor, glassine-dim as to ornate chandeliering with conservatively uniform maitre d' and garçons who tempered their manners along a scale between obsequiousness and hauteur according to the infallible nicety of their customer-discriminations. There's a double hyphenated word. (laughs) But it's a future word, so it's okay. Golden opulent neoplush. Moiki appeared to wince, and then liquidly he flowed over her. Space, time, and theity. He has developed a working philosophical hypothesis that the treatment of time as a fourth dimension of space is purely analogical for working purposes. Real time, he feels, is an autonomous continuum, given artificial stratification by evolving material event arrangements, different in kind from space and therefore not describable in terms of spatial coordinates. They tried to explain time travel multiple times in this book, and each time it was like that. This poops thing? I don't know what that is. (laughs) Yeah, uh, there was a chapter that starts where Thule poops on some papers. Pooped on papers. Thule at two told Kazar (laughs) truthfully that she wanted to get out and nose about a bit. Of course you found the one part where they use the word poop. (laughs) Why was she pooped on papers? (laughs) Okay, okay. This book does that thing... I guess other people don't mind it. I don't know. But I just think it's a bad idea to reference better books in your shitty book. Because every time I hear about another book, I just wish I was reading that book. Yeah. So throughout this book, 
they're talking, they're referencing Dumas. And it made no sense. Like, okay, Claudine is introduced to the first character, and she decides that he's like Portos from the Three Musketeers. For no reason. She just decides that. Whoever thinks of one of the Musketeers, not the entire unit, <laughs> and their relationships to each other within the three of them, like, that, uh, this guy is just like that one Musketeer. But then as she's introduced to the other characters, she decides they're all like the other Musketeers. But they're nothing like the Musketeers! And this this isn't a little moment in the book. This happens for a very... This is a very continuous thing. And I thought the funniest part of referencing the Three Musketeers was when Calabrini gets introduced and she's like, Oh, I forgot about D'Artagnan. This must be D'Artagnan. How do you forget about D'Artagnan in the Three Musketeers? <laughs> yeah, but... Also, then she starts using that to solve the mystery, as if... As good as evidence as any other evidence she has. <laughs> There's a part where Claudine has a little book report where... Hold on. She frowned painfully, remembering a post-medieval 20th century novel about a youth who was being shielded from the war draft only by his college enrollment, who was a freshman, who would become totally vulnerable on graduation three years later. Incredibly, despite brilliance, he flunked his freshman year and dropped out. The underlying reason why was implicit clear in the novel, and the principle applied here on Turquoise five centuries later. What book is she talking about? I don't know, but it sounds way more interesting than the book I'm reading. And what did it have to do with anything in this chapter? Nothing. Nothing. I think there were quite a few references that I didn't get, because I'm, you know, not as well-read as Ian Wallace, I guess. Yeah. But among the books that are referenced are Three Musketeers, The Man in the Iron Mask, Sherlock, obviously, uh, Brave New World, uh, various Poe mystery stories, and every time... I just think, gosh, I wish I was reading that instead of this. <laughs> Especially uh, telling the synopsis of another book seems like a really bad move. Because just imagine comparing the two synopses of these books. I would go for that other one every time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, instead of just name dropping all these other authors, probably should have, you know, stolen a little bit of their style. <laughs> yeah, or... or their plots or so. Um, so unlike a few of the books we've read on this podcast, I'm positive Ian Wallace did a first draft and a second draft of this book <laughs> because there is a part where he messes up. Um, there's a paragraph where, uh, in the interview with Clondia, where Clondia's last name changes from Clondia Charles to Clondia Calabrini. And she says how she's very concerned for her husband, Har, um, who, is, who is dead in our story. So I think originally Claudia was Calabrini's wife or mistress. Huh. And it just, her name changes and her concern for her husband changes for one paragraph in the interview with Thule. And I read it a lot of times. I've, I missed it. Um, yeah, so I could see that there's so many other things in the writing distracting you, and the Calabrini, Claudia, Claudine are very similar names. Uh, but it, she, I don't know, the names changed. And I think this was just a, a spot that he missed 
they decided to change after his first draft. Mm. I also, I know that you think Thule is autistic, <laughs> but I think maybe at one point Thule was a robot. Oh. Or it was supposed to be revealed that she's a robot because in this book, there's a there's an asterisk when someone asks Tuli her name and she refuses to tell her full name and it says, read Death Star Voyage to find out the origin of Tuli's name. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is silly and dumb. I, I like that little advertisement for his other books <laughs> that he dropped in there. Um, but it, it made me think, oh, maybe Tuli's like an acronym. Oh. Uh, and there's just other things where when she's interviewing Claudia, she's like, all right, interview routine B9. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, now interview routine 3A. Um, yes. And then there's a part when they're about to get in a fight and Claudine yells at Tuli, like, Tuli, plan A, activate. <laughs> and then Tuli, like, kicks a guy in the face. <laughs> So so maybe she is just uh, a big weirdo. <coughs> well, yeah, I thought... But maybe she could be a robot. Yeah. I guess we'll have to read Death Star Voyage to no, find no. out. <laughs> I would never read this author again. It's too... This no. was, at least in Probability Man, there are exciting or weird things happening. In Probability Man, also, it felt like you could kind of tune out for a part and it didn't matter. In this... I was trying to figure out the mystery. I thought these details were going to matter. I was trying to understand them, and it was horrible. I think Sign of the Mute Medusa was one of his later books, at least, you know, towards the end of his writing career. I can't imagine the earlier stuff yeah. being any better, only worse. Uh, so who do you think this book is for? Well... <laughs> I thought this might be for fans of the eco-thriller genre. <laughs> Which includes books like Zodiac and Eco-Thriller. <laughs> but even then, I feel like it didn't really explore those themes enough. Who do you think this book is for? I think someone who who likes mystery stories but isn't particularly discerning about their mystery stories might like it. I don't know. I'm trying not to say no one every time on every episode. <laughs> this book was very difficult to read and and very long, or it seemed very long. Yeah, it wasn't that long. It was just... All right, so I think this book's for no one then. <laughs> That's it for The Sign of the Mute Medusa. If you'd like to join us next month, we are reading Keswick, an adult fantasy by Lynn Carter. Ooh. <laughs> I feel like we're going to get in trouble next episode because I'm just going to say it. Because those kids are good.